Amen. God is good. All the time. All the time. How many of you ever heard that? A little call and response there. Uh, that is something that I grew up with, man. And at Bethlehem, that was something that was done, gosh, it feels like almost weekly. God is good, and as people said, all the time, and then all the time, God is good. Man, thank you so much for being here at Lindsay Lane North. We are so glad to have you. If you are visiting with us, whether that's in person or online, uh, if you would, in, online there is a mobile connect card that is associated with the first post, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the initial post uh, of our video, whether it's YouTube or uh, Facebook, please fill out that Connect card. We want to have record of you being here. And for you guys that showed up this morning uh, on the bulletin, inside that bulletin is a Connect card. We would love for you to fill that out. Let us have record that you were here. We want to be able to minister to you, love on you. We want to be able to follow up with you. I promise you we're not going to take advantage of that information that you share with us. But we do want a record that you were here and want to be able to follow up uh, with you in whatever way we can. So uh, we're super glad uh, to have you. We're in a new series this week, a new series that we're tracking with the other two campuses entitled Better Than Good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. When I think about that phrase, I, I think about what I think goodness means. There are some things about God that I really like, that are good for me. I love God's love. I love His, I love his love. I, I enjoy God's love. Why? Because it's God's love that provided a way for me to receive eternal life through His Son. Right? God intervened in my sinfulness, and so His love intervened. I love God's mercy. Right? Because I deserve judgment. And so to understand God's mercy is good news for me. I love God's grace because as any father would give good gifts to their sons and their daughters, my father lavishes his love that I don't already deserve in the first place, but he lavishes it on me in unspeakable ways. There's a lot of things that I love, but a lot of times when we think about good... We think about good as it relates to us. And so when we say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, in a lot of ways, good is a standard that is arbitrary. Because what standard, who are we determining, who are we measuring this, this level of goodness with? As a guy, I say I'm good when pretty much anything has gone on, right? I mean, my dog could have died. I could be broke as a joke. I could have had a falling out with my best friend. My ox could be in the ditch, and I stubbed my toe before I walked in. But another man asks me, hey, buddy, how you doing today? What is your response, men? We're good. That's a pretty low bar, would you agree? I mean, anything can happen, and we're, I mean, we're this side of the dirt, right? So that, I guess that's good. And so what is our standard 
for goodness. Man, I think it's pretty awesome what God did on Easter. Man, I want to celebrate what God did in Easter. Man, it had all three services slam-packed. Man, we had two people that gave their life to Christ that we're following up with. So God added to his kingdom, which is why we do it all to begin with in the first place. It is not for our glory. It is for his glory. And so heaven is sweeter as a result of what happened. And so I want to thank some of you who went to that 1030, or, or left this 1030 service and went to one of the early Earlier services, we appreciate that. Uh, we ten thirty was still our biggest service, right? And so we really appreciate you serving the church in that way. I want to remind you too, just by way of announcement, nine o'clock now has preschool, so we are phasing in that that first service. So if you have a young family with young kids and would like to participate in that service, man, we would encourage you to do so. There's a lot more room in that service, and so we would love for you to do that, to consider that as we continue to grow. But man, there are a lot of good things that we experience, but a lot of times good is relative to us. What we will understand about God as we look at this idea of better than good is that God judges goodness on another level. Goodness is not on our terms. Goodness is on God's terms. And so if we are to see God as good, rather than just see him in all the ways that are good for us, we should see him in the way that he defines goodness. We find it in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet of God, Isaiah, is given an incredible insight, an incredible peek into the presence of God. And what he comes away with is not a whole bunch of stuff that benefits him in the short term, but it's a lot of stuff surrounding the holiness of of God. He sees God for who he really is. And so the title of my message today is Adoration. In order for us to adore Christ and to adore God for who he is, we need to know who he is. We need to see him for who he really is. Because the long and the short of it is ourselves, our sinfulness, our pride can really get in the way and distort our understanding of who God is. But listen to what Isaiah chapter 6 says, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Over the next three weeks, we are going to unpack Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 4, but in preceding text as well. We're going to unpack who God is, what that means for us, and what that means for the mission that God has placed in our life. But for today, the first thing that we're going to understand, number one in your notes, is God is holy. God is holy. Would you join me in prayer? Father... I pray against any way the enemy would love to twist the hearts and the minds of people, the ears of people to hear 
a truth communicated through your words is counter to what your word teaches. But God, I pray that your holiness would be represented today. And God, regardless of how it makes any of us feel, God, may we see you for who you are, not just who we want you to be. See you as the God that not, doesn't just meet, that exists to meet all of our needs, but exists for our existence to bring you ultimate glory. God, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God is holy. The holiness of God is a characteristic of God that we have got to discuss. We love grace. We love mercy. We love all of these things, forgiveness. We love the things about God that really benefit us and that turn out good for us. But church, we must understand these things in the context of something even greater. God is Holy. What does he say in chapter one and in, in verse one? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but in the New Testament lens, we have been given incredible access to God through Christ. But I want you to understand the holiness of God, man, it burns through in the Old Testament time and time again. Now, we have been received grace. We've received mercy. But by the way, it's only in context of the blood of Christ. God is just as holy as he ever was. The difference is he's given us his son as a substitute for our sin. And so when we understand this, we can't get in this habit of, of seeing the good things that God gives us only as being a full picture of who God is. Isaiah receives a vision from the Lord, and this vision highlights the holiness and the glory of God. You see, King Uzziah was a king that ruled in Judah for an unprecedented over 50 years. His reign was unprecedented. Over 50 years, Uzziah, who was considered a good king, he made a lot of religious reforms. There were still undercurrents of, of sinfulness in Israel, but Uzziah was ultimately a good king. At the end, he made a mistake. He, he took the role of priest instead of king, and he offered incense. And in so doing that, God struck him with leprosy and he would eventually die from leprosy. And so this story, Isaiah's ministry, kicks off with the funeral of King Uzziah. But did you hear what he said? In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year I witnessed the death of a king, I saw the king. I saw the one who is reigning supreme and whose throne will never be abdicated. I saw the king. How does he describe the king? He describes him in a way that kings would be described. He was sitting on a throne. Right? A king sitting on a throne, a position of power, a position of legislation, a position of authority. He was sitting on a throne, but it wasn't just any throne. It was a throne that was high and lifted up. 
There is a separateness. When we talk about the holiness of God, the word literally means separateness. It means uh, being apart. It means being other. And so the holiness of God, he sees in the physical divisions, like in the physical uh, distance between him and God. He's on a throne. I'm not on a throne. He's on a throne. I'm not lifted up. He's lifted up. And then it says, as many kings would be described, and he has a train. He has a train. Now, under pain of death, my wife allowed me to use this illustration. I've brought my wife's wedding dress, which... A couple of things I um, did not anticipate. Number one, how long it is. Uh, number two, how heavy it is on this hanger. There's a lot. There's some things that I just didn't realize. All right, I'm just ignorant of these things. Thankfully, I'm ignorant of these things. Uh, but this is my wife's wedding dress, and let me tell you something. Uh, when my wife walked down the aisles, not one aisle. It was First Baptist at Summa had many aisles. She was disappointed about this, as any bride would be, right? All the ladies, yeah, agreed. So as she was making her way down the labyrinth of aisles that brought her to me, when I finally laid eyes on my bride, she was impressive. She was wearing this beautiful dress. And by the way, I asked her if she would model it for us. She can fit into this dress. Ten years later and three kids, she can still fit in this dress. Uh, I asked her to model it. She wouldn't do it. So, shocker. But... She came in this dress, and can I just tell you, color me impressed. My wife has never looked better. And on this gown, though, is something that's known as a a train, right? If you notice, the gown is much longer in the back than in the front. And there's some history behind that as as you think about this idea of, of a train being attached to a wedding dress. A train was a symbol, first and foremost, of affluence. It was a symbol of power, and it was a symbol of authority, and it was typically a symbol of royalty because only the royalty could afford it. Here's the idea. Think about a train on a dress. What purpose does the train serve? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't serve a purpose. It's like cats. They don't serve a purpose, right? So I have them, right? Dogs, man's best friend, right? But cats, no purpose. But, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I've, I've just, y'all have, some of y'all have just shut me off right there. I've lost, all, I've, lost, I've lost all credibility. Please don't give me your cats or anything. Uh, but they, he, the train serves no, no purpose, right? It's just a piece of cloth. And there's nothing functional about covering the person who's wearing it. It was literally a symbol of affluence. I have enough money to just, Add material to the back of my dress, to the back of my robe, because I have that. I have it like that. Like I just, I got stacks on stacks, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to make my clothes longer than all of y'all's because I can. And so people would walk in, and the length of their train symbolized how affluent they were. Therefore, if you have money, you probably have power and influence to a certain degree. And so it became associated with royalty, and that royalty would walk in. And so the idea of a bride having a train is to impress people. My wife was impressive. And since she's not here to show us what she looks like in this dress, I brought what she looks like 10 years ago in this dress. She's fine, ain't she? Men? 
Don't answer that for fear of losing a rib. Ladies, you can answer. That's fine. She was beautiful, is beautiful, but in this picture was beautiful. And she immediately had my attention. She had the attention of everybody in the room. And it wasn't because of the train. It was because of how she was adorned. It was because of the time that she had put in, right? The money that she had put in. But the goal of a bride is to be impressive for her groom. And this is the idea of a train. The train was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of affluence. It was a symbol that was associated with royalty. Now think about it as it relates to God. That in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah saw, I saw the king. He was separate from me by being seated on the throne, a position of power. He was separate from me in distance, in being high and lifted up. He was separate from anything I had ever seen. The hem of his garment, the word train literally means hem. The hem of his garment filled the temple. Now, the temple at this time would have been the most dramatic architectural feat of that day. And so when Hebrews talked about the temple, they were talking about the grandest thing they had ever seen, the most immense thing they had ever seen. And the biggest thing that they ever have seen, the hem of the garment of the king filled that room, filled that temple. I had a vision of God. I saw him high and lifted up. I saw him separate from me. And the train, you want to talk about impressive. The train of his robe filled the temple, proving that he is just of a different cloth than who Isaiah was. And so he saw God in his holiness. Often we serve God with this idea of, of doing God a favor so he owes us one, right? And there are times that I'll, I'll work real hard doing different things in ministry. And I'll think, man, you know, everybody else is having a good time. They're going hanging out with their friends. They're doing whatever they want to do. And I'm here studying for this sermon, or I'm here working this concession stand, or serving in this Easter egg hunt, or whatever. And, and I'll have a fleeting thought in my pride. Maybe I'll get something for it. Like maybe, since I'm doing God this favor... Maybe he'll give me something down the road. Now, that may or may not be the case, but that in our minds talks, it points to the sinfulness of how we approach God. Even Esther, the queen, feared approaching the king because of the power and the authority that this king had. She didn't want to go into his presence unannounced because that could end very poorly for her. And so there is an idea about God that God exists to serve all for practical, all practical purposes, serves every need that we have. My friend, if that is how you view God, he is not your cosmic vending machine. He is holy. He is separate. He is set apart. The train of his robe fills the temple. He has ultimate power and authority over you, whether you like it or not. He is holy. And when we serve God with this idea of maybe God will pay me back, do you know what that assumes? That assumes 
that God would owe us something. I want, in my quiet times this, this week, I, I read Luke chapter 17. And in Luke chapter 17, the disciples who have worked hard for God, they have worked hard for Jesus. Jesus gives them a parable. And he says, what servant, after he's worked a hard day on, in the field, would say, hey, come. And what master would say, hey, servant, come and put your feet up. Relax. I'll make you some dinner. Man, you've had a hard day. See, what master would do that? He said, no, what actually happens is because you're the servant... After your hard day of work, the master says, hey, I'm hungry. And the servant says, what do you want to eat? And you go and fix them something to eat. This is the nature of a master and a servant. And at the end of it, he says in verse 10 of Luke 17, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. All of these servants were paying back a debt. These indentured servants were most commonly what was used in this system in biblical days. And they had a debt that they owed. And so in order to survive, they would, they would exist because of the money of the person that owned them, their master. And so they were paying back the debt, really, of survival for their families. Now, there was corruption in that. And, all, and Jesus got it. And Jesus isn't advocating for slavery, but it was a reality in this day. And he said, listen, as a slave owner would, would do this, as a, as a servant owner would do this, a master would do this, the servant would be paying back a debt. And so he didn't get to call the shots. The master did. My friends, we have never, if you have a relationship with Christ, you have never known a debt like the debt that has been paid for. This pales in comparison to any mortgage, any car note, any student loans. We have had a debt paid for us. And there's really nothing that I could ever do to pay it back. That's the beauty of the gospel is God gave it to us when we couldn't repay him in return. The God whose train fills the temple decided to exchange my worthlessness for his ultimate worthiness. And I'll never pay it back. But the slant of the human culture, of the American culture, is that we are doing God a favor in the things that we do. The Holman commentary says, Faith is accepting the role of an obedient servant while expecting great gratitude, without expecting great gratitude and reward. Faith trusts Jesus and so follows Jesus. Why? Because we trust him as our master. We trust him as the one who should call the shots. So who cares what we think we need? He can meet all of our needs. And so we come to him time and time again. This approaching God is not on our terms. It's on his terms. When we come to God, we come to him on his terms, not our own. And you may be thinking, well, I don't like that. To which I would respond, I don't care. I don't like it either. I don't like being the boss of my life. That is the situation, that is the circumstance of my sinfulness. I like to call the shots. But when we see God as just a God who meets all of our needs, and we miss his holiness, we miss the idea that we approach him on his terms, not our own. And so the king 
is there. He's seated high and lifted up. And the train of his robes filling the temple. Listen to what I've written here. Our perspective of who God is is, is, is either informed by your faith in his truth or your feelings in your truth. Our perspective of who God is is either informed by your faith in his truth or your feelings in your truth. You may be thinking, well, I don't like it. We are given emotions as humans. We have emotions as part of who we are. We have feelings. Sometimes those feelings are hurt. Sometimes those feelings are strengthened. But we have feelings. What the danger of postmodern culture is, we have allowed feelings to dictate truth. No longer is it what I know to be true, it's what I feel to be true. And so what I feel to be true trumps everything. If we use our feelings as a source of truth, we will arrive at a truth. We'll arrive at our own truth. Our own truth that is subjective. Our own truth that is ultimately powerless and worthless because we are allowing our feelings to dictate what is truth. If you use feelings as a source, you will come to a conclusion, but it does not mean it will be true. And so when we look at God's word and we encounter his holiness, like here in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6, we can say, well, I don't like that, and that's not true for me. And my friend, what I would say to you is you can't come to God on your terms. You've got to come to him on his terms. And so salvation dictates that you understand the holiness of God and you understand who he is. Because our perspective is what makes the difference. Our perspective of who God is is either informed by your faith in the truth. You either put your faith in the source that is God's word. You put your faith in the source that is what his spoken revelation of God to man. You either put it there or you put it in something else. You'll arrive at a conclusion, but it may not be truth. Faith can either be put in what is correct or what is comfortable. What's right? Or what's comfortable? This seems right to me. But God is holy. And we approach him in the grounds of his holiness. Number two, God is holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy. Holy. This doesn't just speak of holiness being an attribute of God or a characteristic of God. This speaks of holiness being the characteristic of God. We love all the things that sound good to us about God, but what we understand as we read scripture is holiness is part of who God is, not what he has. Listen to the the scene that was said. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim were unique in scripture. The Old Testament doesn't have any other place in scripture where these angelic beings exist. In fact, the closest word equivalent that we have in the Hebrew is the fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21. The fiery serpents that are sent on Israel because they're complaining and they start biting them and people start dying. The fiery serpents is the same word that's used here. Not angelic beings, but literal fiery serpents, poisonous serpents that kill people. And then he creates a fiery serpent statue. God tells him to create a statue. And anyone that looks on the statue... Right, will be healed. 
<clears throat> this is the closest equivalent that we have. The seraphim have six wings, right? The, the word seraph literally means to burn. And so for Isaiah to see these seraphim, he's not thinking, hey, these seraphim are here to make me feel better about things. They're here to coddle my, my, all of my feelings and to make sure that I leave with a smile on my face. Although sometimes we view church that way when we understand holiness on God's terms. It's not the case. Not always the case. Because when we see God revealed, the burning ones were there to deal with Sin. We'll talk about that next week. They were there to deal with iniquity. They were there to purge. They were there to burn away anything that was not holy. Why? Because Isaiah was in the presence of God. He was in the presence of ultimate holiness. And so the seraphim were there, right? The two wings to cover their face. This was symbolic of the reverence of God. They, could, they would not look upon God. The two wings covering their feet was symbolic of humility. They were taking the posture of a servant, and the feet of a servant would be the most dirty part of their body, and so they covered their feet, and they flew with the other two, right? They were flying and repeating back and forth, holy, holy, holy. But that's not all. That's not it. In regards to his holiness, listen to what verse 4 says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Remember me saying the temple was the greatest structure they'd ever seen. It was also also the most fortified structure they'd ever seen. And so the sturdiest building in the world that they knew of, that they had ever witnessed, the threshold of the doors would have been the sturdiest of that structure. So literally what he was saying is the sturdiest construct of the sturdiest structure in Israel was shaken. The sturdiest thing you could think of was shaken at the voice and the presence of God. And the room was filled with smoke. Listen to this, church. God's holiness is who he is. It's not what he has. In your notes, holiness is the attribute of God that helps us understand all of his attributes. Holiness literally means separateness. It means worthy of honor and awe. And if we're not careful, we'll say God is loving, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is forgiving, God is blah, da, 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 da. And God is holy will be in that list. This is not the way that God intends that we understand his holiness. Holiness is the lens by which we view every attribute of God. Holiness means separateness. So God is separate in the way that he loves us. When we talk about unconditional love, we go, yeah, it's like the love of a father or mother. No, it's not. No, it's not. It so far exceeds that. It's crazy. It's completely higher than that. It's separate than that. You can't compare it to anything. So God in his lovingness is completely holy. He is separate. God hates sin. He hates sin just like I hate when my sons do something wrong. Well, no, I'm, no, it's not. It's not like that at all because God in his hatred of sin is completely holy in it, meaning he is separate from my hatred through his hatred of sin. When God shows grace, he shows grace in a holy fashion, meaning separate and higher. So everything, every attribute of God is filtered through, through this idea of holiness. He is holy and he is separate in every single way. Listen to what Tony Evans says. God's holiness, <clears throat> his separateness is the centerpiece of his character. The centerpiece. It's the key, he says other places. 
All of his other attributes flow from it. His wrath against us, against sin, then, is a holy wrath. His sovereignty over the universe is a holy sovereignty. His love for the world is a holy love. If God is anything, he is holy. Be very careful treating God as a God you can come to on your terms because you will find yourself not worshiping the God of the Bible. You will find yourself worshiping yourself because he is holy and he is separate than anything we could ever imagine or relate to. There is an aspect of God that is inapproachable for us in our sin. We can't know God in our sin. Why? Because he's holy. He's separate. He's lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. There nothing else can compare to this. But thirdly and finally, God is holy, holy, holy. This speaks to the standard of God's holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. Listen to what it says in verse 3. And the one called to another, the seraphim, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Literally, the Lord of angels' armies. The Lord who, has, who is the ruler the commander-in-chief of the host of heaven's armies. This was Isaiah's favorite word for God because it approached him in holiness. God is a God who is holy. And so he commands all of heaven's armies. This is the God that we serve. But he's holy, holy, holy. There's two Two possibilities of what could be here. Number one, this could be identifying the holiness of all three members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them are holy. All of them are separate. So therefore, everything that they do is in the lens of holiness. They are all separate in the way that they go about doing what they do. Their activity on earth and in creation and in the universe, right? They are holy. But there's another idea in the Hebrew culture. When things are repeated once, twice, and then three times, they are the pinnacle of what you are describing. So if something is repeated three times, it's one thing to mean something, right? But it would be the equivalent of us talking to our kids, right, and saying, Hey, Hudson, I need you to come here and do this. Hey, Hudson... Come here. Hudson Warren Ostrisky, get your butt in here now. You see the difference? Holy, holy, holy is multiplied emphasis on holy. And so God is not just holy in all three members of his trinity, but together they are holy, holy, holy. They are the pinnacle of holiness. And you're going, well, Alan, you're not making me feel any better. And I would say, I know. Right? Have we established God is higher? These seraphims are screaming it. In fact, there's, he's so holy, they're not stopping They're doing it forever. It is the constant sound, the constant track on repeat in heaven. Talk about needing a verse or a bridge, right? Holy, holy, holy is all that they sing. Because they could never describe his holiness. Never adequately describe. 
my friend, we have a discounted understanding of the holiness of God. So this sounds like bad news because we're separated. We can't approach him because he's inapproachable. But then it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I can look around, y'all, and there's a lot of things that don't seem good to me. Right? There's a lot of things. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens in this earth, him, the earth being full of his glory doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. And there's disease, and there's death, and there's sin. There are things that are bad. But what his glory means And the fact that the earth is full of it is that there is nothing in the earth that does not escape his sovereignty. And even though all is not good, everything is being worked for the good. But it ain't your good. It's his. And so our salvation, boy, that's good for me. But you know what? The end goal is not to be good for me. The end goal is to demonstrate his goodness. And so this is the, this is the posture that he is giving Isaiah. This is the portrait. Can you imagine what Isaiah is witnessing? And we're going to discuss exactly who he is in light of God's holiness after this. But listen to this. His whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is seen both in his separation and his salvation of creation. Because God in his glory, because he is full of glory, in his separateness, is holy in his glory, right? He is other in his glory, and he has chosen to intervene on our behalf. You see, my friend, you are forever separated from God on your own power. You're forever separated. But God made a way. For you to experience his holiness. Not based on your own activity. But because of what Jesus did for you. God sent his son. His only son. For God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him. Would not perish. But have everlasting life. Do we grasp what's being said there? The holy God sent his son for us so that we don't have to be separated from God because of his holiness forever. But through the indwelling of God, through receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, through the Holy Spirit's change that he can bring about in your life and he's brought about in my life, we can have access to the holy of holies of holies. We have access to God through Christ. And my friend, that's the most important message I could ever deliver to you today. It's not based on your own ability or your own achievement. It's based on God's holiness and his holiness that has intervened for you. Because God is a God of redemption. And guess what his redemption is? It's holy. It's different than anything you could ever imagine. And so if you would bow your head and close your eyes. As we enter in a time of invitation, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to his holiness. And God loves you. God sent his son to die for you. But all that information doesn't mean anything to you until you receive it. Until you receive the gift of eternal life. 
God desires to take out your sin. God desires to remove the heart of flesh from within you. God desires for you to lay down and surrender your life to Him. And in exchange, He will give you everything that He is. Man, what a bargain. But it requires the laying down of our life. And so today, I want to encourage you to make a decision to surrender to this relationship with God. Man, surrender. If you know you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can today. We've got counselors that would love to talk to you. The way that you would do that is you would just respond by standing up when we begin to sing, just making your way to the middle aisle here, coming and finding me at the front. And I'll connect you with a counselor that would love to talk to you about any decision that you need to make. Maybe you just need to realign some things in your life. Maybe you need to surrender to the Lord. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here at North. Maybe you need to be baptized. But this invitation is for you. My goodness, don't put off a deal like this. God has offered His holiness to you. It doesn't matter what you came in here with, what sin you've carried in here. God can to the uttermost. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And His holiness can be put to work to make you holy again. Would you respond to that today? Would you respond? Father God, we love you and we thank you for this invitation. God, I thank you for the one that needs to respond to you. God, I thank you for the one that needs to come and find a spot at this altar and they just need to lay down some things. Maybe the one that needs to pray for somebody that you've laid on their heart to reach with this incredible news, this incredible gospel, this incredible relationship. But God, this altar is open for anybody that would would desire to come and use it to pray and lift up any need that they might have. But God, I pray for the one that needs to make a life-altering decision to commit to you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray you give them boldness to respond. Be obedient just to align ourselves. God with who you are. May we come to you on your terms and not